Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Dental Practice Launch Podcast, where we help you grow and launch the practice of your dreams, uh, presented by Crimson Media Dental Marketing. I am your host, Shane Simmons, and today I have Vincent Crump here with us. He is the CEO of Midline Dental Partners. Uh, Vincent and I, it's funny, you know, in the dental industry, you see these people on Facebook, uh, different groups, and kind of cross paths digitally, but recently Vincent and I were able to cross paths in person at an event down in uh, San Antonio. And I was really uh, just talking with him in five minutes. I knew it was like, this is somebody we got to bring on the podcast. This is somebody who could definitely share a lot of insights and has the experience and track record of growing practices and, and helping everybody from that kind of smaller practice who's scaled up significantly to DSOs. And so uh, this is one that I'm really looking forward to. Um, as we kind of get into this, you know, Vincent, I would love to just hear a little bit about kind of your background, what got you into you know, consulting, and how did this all kind of form? Yeah, yeah. And again, Shane, thanks for having me on. It was it was fun in San Antonio. It was it was hot though. I that, that was it was I humid hope too, which it's not usually humid in San Antonio. It felt like we were you know back in the Midwest yeah. in August. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And then trying to eat outside on top of that, it was it was interesting. But no, Shane's right. I had a great conversation with him. I, I love coming on, things like this, sharing knowledge. Uh, to answer the first question that you asked, so I started in dentistry a little over a decade ago. Um, started with one of the largest DSOs, worked, worked as a regional with them. And then I organically realized that that style of a corporate model wasn't necessarily for me. So I moved into private group practice and worked in C-suite capacity. So I helped a group scale from two to seven locations. And we went from right around $3 million in revenue to a little over $18 million when I left. I then went to an ortho and general blind, did the same thing, scaled them. And then COVID hit. And the, it was a husband and wife partner ownership. And we had a conversation and they said, Hey, you know what, with everything that happened, we, we like where we're at. We don't think we're going to acquire any more practices, but we know this isn't the end of the road for you. And I just kind of figured, you know, why not see if the model that I've taken with two groups and implemented works out in the market and try and help more than one dentist be more successful at the operating aspects of the business. And it's, it's gone quite well. It's been fun. It's, it, you see a lot of similar challenges, but everything's so unique. It, it, it keeps things interesting all the time. Yeah, you know, with, with us, we've really found our way in kind of the, the dental startup world and, and recent acquisitions and, and people really starting on practice number one. But it's mm -hmm. always so fun to see when you have somebody that, you know, you've seen the processes that put in place the hard work and then when they open that second location, or that third location, you know, if, if that's their goal and they're accomplishing that, you know, it's really fun to see from, from the marketing side of things. And, you know, that's really what we're going to talk about today for everybody listening is for those of you who have those aspirations of being a multi-practice owner, you know, Vincent's going to be able to kind of give you some of his learnings over years of, of doing this and, and what you can look out for. Um, to start, you know, what is maybe just a couple of common blind spots that you've seen in dentistry that's really prevented, you know, that single practice owner, for example, from being able to successfully open up, you know, multi-locations? Oh, the easy answer to that is time. 
is the reality that there is not enough time between clinical, administrative, and prospecting. So one of the biggest things that I see single practice owners struggle with is you can get to two and two is comfortable because you can typically split your time between locations, work alongside an associate, and still have that touch that you're used to having at the practice level. It's really when you get to three, four, and five that you have to make a decision of what you want as an owner. And people love the, you know, they it's Facebook, right? They love the numbers that people throw out and this guy's making these crazy things and people are selling practices for unbelievable amounts of money. But it comes at a clinical sacrifice. So, and what I mean by that is, you have to understand that you can't run the handpiece as often when you get to that size of a scale. You get pulled in too many directions and things start to slip. And that's where a lot of owners feel like they're failing, but it's just the reality that we all run into is that you only have so much energy and so much time that you just have to figure out what to devote it to. So if you know that you want to practice clinically for seven to 10 years, and then you want to move into the business side, that group ownership's probably going to be for you. If you really love the patient touch and can see yourself practicing three and a half, four days a week for the rest of your career, I honestly would say, you know, maybe consider a second location, but cap it at that. It, unless you're going to a model where you're completely hands off and trusting your C-suite and administrative team, there, there's not really a way to continue to practice in that capacity. Yeah, it, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've read the book, The E-Myth, um, you know, but I was reading The, the E-Myth, and it, it's a classic book. Anybody who, you know, is going to be in practice ownership, I highly recommend it. But like what Vincent's saying there, at some point, you have to go from being the the doer, the clinician, to being the CEO of the of the practice or that, you know, the, the actual operations and overseeing, you know, the business side of it. And I think that's where not just dentists, but you'll business owners in general get hung up. And I also think that's the reason that, what is it? It's like less than 5%, 10% of small businesses ever surpass like a million dollars annually in revenue is, is due to, like you said, there's only so much time in a day that you can dedicate. And at some point you have to learn to delegate and to, to scale uh, essentially. And so that's something that you've seen some practices really do and i i'm looking at your website you i've seen a practice that you know you was stuck it seems like around seven hundred thousand, seven hundred fifty thousand annually and you know your your team grew them over past that three million dollar mark i mean yeah. what is the big step there in order to to hear you know people listening to this here seven hundred thousand three million they're like that could seem impossible for them at times but what are the key elements that really need to be put in place in that foundation to make that type of leap uh so it's budgetary structure is one that even when you're at seven hundred thousand dollars it's actually much easier to impact your profit and loss at that level than it is at three million dollars so we with that specific client we got expense measures in place where their supply spending was high their wages were high their rent was high it sounds pretty familiar to what everyone's going through right now but this this was several years ago that we started working with them and at that point we got all the operating expense looked in place and then we looked at their ppo 
relationships and they're not a fee for they're about 12% fee for service. Now they're actually still retainer clients of ours, but we took them and just worked with a third party company. I, I don't know if you've had five lakes on before Brian Phillips or Nick Partridge I'm familiar with them. Yeah. They're, they're phenomenal guys. And Five Lakes did a great job uh, working alongside us of structuring that lease network relationship. And some of those direct carriers had a drop from, you know, 50-ish percent write-off to mid to low 20s. So without increasing the patient base in the first practice, we were able to capture more revenue without any added share time. Then we took that cash flow strategy and said exactly that, that, you know what, we've got excess cash flow we have the administrative capacity we feel now is the time that would be viable for you guys to bring a second practice on if you're considering it and they absolutely did and and they went rule which i'm a i'm a huge proponent of they got a practice for under five hundred thousand dollars what they bought it for it was doing about 600 ish k if i remember correctly and it was the same thing that looking at their coding optimization their fee structure and then their budgetary perspectives of what they're doing with their operating expense they in they've had it two years now and they scaled it from 580 to 600 to now it's doing about 1.6 million so it's it's just taking that system making sure you have it honed in and being very cost conscious with things to create cash flow and then you can just replicate it and what i spoke to um you about a little bit when we were in san antonio about banks so they're going through that transition now where they want to bring some additional practices on and they're having to switch from mom and pop bank to one of the bigger lenders because they're hitting that debt threshold that no longer banks are going to be comfortable to lend for expansions and all of the things that you need to thrive in this world. Yeah, and you know, first off, I mean that that's awesome, you know, uh, case study there and and great work on that. And one of the things that you know, I'd like to hear a little bit more about too is we talk to a lot of uh, startups who kind of when we're onboarding them and we're going to be working with them, doing their marketing, getting their brand, all of this. One of the things that we always ask is, you know, what are your goals for the next 12 months, the next sure. five years and the next 10 years? And what do you want that legacy to look like? And occasionally we get that person that says, you know, listen, I want to grow multiple locations. I want to have five locations in the next 10 years. You know, I want to you know, have a certain way that we want to treat patients. We want to expand that, grow that. And they have these big visions. And, and I admire that. I, I think that that's really inspiring. But there are so many things you don't know what you don't know. And so yes. to that practice owner who is, has this dream and they're listening to this and it's still several years down the road, what is some of the blueprints that you could say, listen, if this is your end goal and you mentioned one thing about time, what are some other things that maybe they can start practicing or pay attention to in their single practice location to help get them prepared to be the CEO to open those multiple locations? Yeah, so you can feel it, right? When all of these doctors enter on a daily basis and you can see the systems that you have in place start to break in real time, you know that you need to evolve your processes. So one of the most common things in business is an organization chart and they start off very simple they go on phases when you're one practice it is just the owner and then there's your bucket of team members underneath that 
But then, you know, let's say you go to two locations, that org chart is going to evolve. And this is what I was speaking to a little bit a few minutes ago is it'll still be the owner, but now it's going to break in half. And now you have two teams to manage. So knowing that you have to build those role responsibilities of things that you can delegate to be able to give yourself time, because yes, you might still be able to practice four days clinically, but I would almost guarantee if you're not offloading any managerial responsibilities at two locations, you're, you're committing yourself to 70 plus hours a week. So that is where I see people start to struggle. So you'll feel those systems start to break. And when you just get that first feeling, that's when you really have to say, all right, what can we sit down? What can we refine? How can I implement a process where I can practice delegation tactics and set a follow-up system to where I'm not just handing it off and hoping that it's going to work out for the best. You're setting deadlines and you're setting deliverable expectations to your direct reports. If you start to do that early on, even with your first office manager, that's someone that typically in those scenarios that you can help to coach and grow if it's a, a really strong team member to get yourself to, you know, three or four, maybe five locations and they will, you know, you'll find some people that they they have that capacity to move further than that. But then you have to really start considering, all right, I need to bring in some C-level people, either in a outsource capacity or a director of operations to get me to that next level. So it it's hard for Dennis. I, I've worked with Dennis for over a decade. There is a lot of control working in the mouth. It's such a finite space. So it's only logical that you approach your businesses the same way and don't feel bad about that. But to grow in the business world, you have to evolve as a human being. And that's that's pushing yourself into places where you're uncomfortable. And a lot of that is it's really trusting other people to take care of something. More times than not, you grew from the ground up. Delegation is a skill, man. It's a skill that you have to practice. You have to hone in. You have to learn. I mean, I've even had a coach myself who's helped me you know, do that exact thing and put the right leadership in place because very much similar. I could, you know, feel you know that the anxiety starting when it's like oh my gosh you know can can somebody else do this and and sometimes you know we you know bottleneck ourselves we're the biggest bottleneck which led you know one thing you brought up there was you know about kind of like the putting the right operations in place and you know sops or something that i tell every dental practice for those you know they're not sure the acronyms you know standard operating procedures how important have you seen vincent having those SOPs in place for a practice like how big of a difference is that from you know the the struggling practice to the one that's profitable succeeding and growth oh it's it's paramount and and it's not only the fact of having a system it's having expectations and time points within the month that you can look into a system and see what's going on and and you know the old adage of you can't manage what you don't measure if you don't have an operating procedure in place, how can you measure something that you don't have a process for? So, you know, I always relate it back to clinical, right? That that would be like walking into a crown prep and just winging it. You're not picking your burrs. You're not really sure what anesthetic you're going to use. It's the same thing administratively from running a business that if you aren't prepped for that process, it's not going to go well. And you don't have anyone else to blame but yourself for that lack of preparation. Yeah. And the other part of that, too, is if you don't start with holding people accountable, building these procedures, and that team expands, I imagine it becomes much harder 
to get people to buy into that after they've been kind of wild wild west winging it the entire time is is that something that you notice when you've come in had to put these processes in, in place for practices do, do the team you know struggle with with the buy-in i imagine that would be an obstacle so it, it's kind of funny and and i will tell you guys as single practice owners i i work with dso's as well up to i think my largest client that i've had has been around 45 million in revenue and they have the same problems just on a larger scale when I work with them. And to answer your question, what's funny is usually the direct reports of the people that it impacts, they're clamoring for that structure. They're clamoring for not that you're you know holding them to deadlines and being aggressive with it. It's just they want clarity in what they want to do in their job because when their job goes smooth, they're less stressed, which makes their life easier. So yes, having chaos go on, it's not good for anyone. So the team's never really resistant to it. They're more so like, oh, thank you so much that we we actually have some foresight on how we can fix this and how we can move forward. Yeah, I feel like, you know, as humans, that's just natural. Like we crave some structure and especially depending on personality types, you know, more you know, some than, than others. And which is kind of a, a unique question, I guess I'd like to ask is, with offices you work with, do you recommend like in the hiring process as you're growing and scaling, making sure you have the right team members, you know, in the right spots in the practice? Do you uh, recommend any certain personality tests or assessments or anything like that when you're hiring pra uh, practice owners or hiring? Loaded question. Um, so I mean, yeah, like the Colby A or DISC scoring someone is helpful to understand how to coach the person. But the more imperative piece is actually coaching the person in that manner once they're onboarded. I've seen a lot of great hires happen, but because the onboard process is less than stellar, the good ones go a lot faster than the bad ones. They can very easily sniff out what is going to be a stressful or difficult job for them. And in this market, they know that there's other options out there. So yes, I do recommend it, but also make sure you can follow up and deliver on the fact that you're hiring a certain personality type. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. We we use a Colby at my company and you know, I've used, I feel like, about all of them. And the, the Colby one's been you know great for us and what we do. But yeah, I was always curious how uh, practice owners, you know, should do that because you do, you know, if you're hiring an assistant, you know, you have a unique skill set that you need to hire for or front desk, you know, you have a unique skill set that you're, that you're hiring for. Uh, one other thing that, you know, I want to talk about, you know, we've talked a little bit about from the startup doctor and, you know, their perspective on starting, growing, implementing systems. And then if they have those multi-location goals, really putting themselves, you know, out of the chair side, you know, as you scale. But one thing I want to hit on a little bit is acquisitions, because we do work yeah. with a lot of offices who, you know, go the route of acquiring a practice. And yeah. uh, I'm curious with you, like, what is, I guess, part of what your team, you know, helps with in this process? And again, same kind of question with, with uh, the startups. What are maybe some of the common mistakes or pitfalls that you see practice owners make when trying to purchase a practice? Oh, lack of due diligence. That, that's an easy answer to me that 
people will typically go off and and i will say this too they trust the broker too much and i will tell you there are some good brokers out there but they're monetarily incentivized so everything to them is going to be sunshine and rainbows and they're going to put a positive spin on it but there's nothing wrong with questioning things during the due diligence process and you really have to think about what's the manner in which i'm asking it you when you're buying a practice from someone if it's single doctor to single doctor right you're buying that legacy build that that person has so this is a direct connection of their personality so approach it in a positive manner but Doctors look at the P&L, they look at the cash flow, the banker tells them it's fine, the CPA tells them it's fine. What they really need to look at though is what is the PPO strategy? So what are the average write-offs that this doctor is taking? The big fight in the country right now is what are they a premier Delta dentist and I'm a PPO Delta dentist. So looking at and calculating what's that difference in write-off going to be because that's that's an immediate adjustment that has to be addressed if you can hopefully before the letter of intent but it's usually after that there should be a reduction in the purchase price because you can't recapture that revenue and the other side is looking at the coding mix and you can identify usually if a doctor is under diagnosing and i hate to say that in a way but we all know that when you get 30 years in and you know all of the patients it's it's the Hey, Jane, how are you doing today? I know we've been watching that tooth for a while. Is it bothering you? No, it's doing just fine. All right, well, you know, let me know. Let me know when it's bothering you and we'll we'll take care of it. So that, that case study was that exact example of that, that the doctor was friends with everyone, but he was doing minimal treatment. So there was hundreds of thousands of dollars of untapped revenue. And you can typically see that in the ratio of the number of fillings, number of crowns, obviously endosurgery, in comparison to the number of exams that they do. If (laughs) those ratios are off, it's more of an indicator of that's usually a positive practice to buy if it has healthy cash flow, rather than the adverse of, I don't think there's a lot of treatment in there. It's it's usually, now this is is a goldmine of undiagnosed treatment. It's just all about building the relationship. So make sure you do your due diligence pay the money to like a lot of these doctors just rely on the current office manager to credential them pay a company because i will tell you seven to ten thousand dollars can be the difference in hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue so i understand there's a lot of cost incurrence at the time but you have to look at the long run I tell doctors that are buying their first practice, the acquisition process is basically the first two weeks of them being a D1 in their career in dentistry, if you want a comparison. So don't be afraid to bring someone on again, like, you know, Five Lakes or Vivek Kinra and his company, PPO Profits. There, there are people out there that can pay dividends for you if you just invest that little bit of capital in the beginning. Yeah, that's the analogy I always like to say is, you know, would you give somebody a dollar for them to give you 25 back? You know, it's really what it comes down to on the front end. It looks like there's a you know heavy fee to pay. But like you said, you're going to save so much on the back end of that. And, you know, one of the things that I thought about, too, in, in that process is just all the things that to look into that you don't know as a new practice owner it's like the famous saying you don't know what you don't know and yep. that's exactly what we've talked about there it's like you rely too much on the broker you know you may not be looking at the full picture you know looking at the demographics the area sure those are great but that was an interesting insight of looking at the potential untapped treatment 
that I think a lot of people maybe don't do their due diligence um, on that piece. So that was interesting to me. Um, one of the other things I wanted to you know talk a lot about a little bit is, you know, the process of a an acquisition. What is a typical timeline that you you know recommend people you know follow? Because I know there's kind of you know the like on your website you mentioned like the entity preparation, you know, building you know, the professional relationships, the right contractors to use, and then you know kind of that next phase of looking at the practice and and how it's doing. Um, is there a certain time frame of, you know, for someone thinking, I want to buy a practice in the next two years, like when should they reach out to, you know, a company like yourself? So six to nine months is pretty common for an acquisition. I will tell you the big variable in that is if real estate is involved in the deal that can cause some variability in it. Four months, if you can get it done in four months, that's extremely fast. Just in getting everything lined up with the bank, closing dates, all of that, that if you close in four months, everything was really precise. But six is pretty common. And if real estate's involved, I've seen it go nine months. And you have to remember that the larger the acquisition, the longer it's going to take because you really want to make sure that you go through the quality of earnings. So in the profit and loss, you want to make sure that you're looking at all the possible addbacks. And what that means is, you know, some examples are, is one of the family members working as an employee for the office? If they are and they're being paid, they're usually being overcompensated, which means that's a potential savings in the future. I also see it go the other way where, you know, wife is working there, but she's not on payroll. So that's a cost incurrence that you're going to have occur because you're going to have to bring a team member on for that. Are anything, are there any things out of the norm? Like there was one that I did earlier this year that uniform spend was, I was like over $22,000. Well, yeah. And, and then if you ask, and it was a healthy, you know, it was a $3 million practice. So when you help ask him, it's like, well, is this for the team? And it was when it boiled down, essentially the wife got the office credit card and spent some fun weekends every now, which is fine, but because it's a positive thing as a buyer that, you know, it's like, okay, that's probably 15 grand in savings on the profit and loss that I can immediately throw back on. So doing that quality of earnings and making sure you can look through the P&L and understand what your true operating expense is going to be is paramount. And to answer your question, usually it's right around when the letter of intent gets signed. That's when someone like myself gets involved. There are um, pure buyer reps out there like Brian Hanks and Mary Fisher that do it extremely well. What we help in is more of that group acquisition strategy. So if you're trying to buy three practices in the next two years, we're more so the person you want to work with because there's more involved than just buying the, that's then again going back to building the organizational chart the internal entity structure starting to outsource some of the operating aspects that's that's more what we do for clients but obviously we work in advisory capacities too that after you buy to help get things into alignment because a lot of those people they stop at the sale or you work with your cpas and cpas are great but most of them can only identify and then they don't know how to fix yeah the marketing side that my CPA friends will 
laugh at this. We we call uh, the CPAs the the CF knows sometimes. You know the, the oh is that cost money? No, we're not doing that. Yeah, <laughs> that, and that's so, my biggest fight is they look at advisors like ah that that's going to be costly. Maybe I would you know step away. But most people they see you know six x on what they spend on a, on a good consultant. Not even just my firm. It's anyone out there like Hendrick Y, Genevieve Poppy, like any of those people, what you spend on that, they're going to get you back in fistfuls by just yep. investing that little bit of time and capital. Yep. Big difference between an expense and an investment. That's what I tell practices, yep. you know, an expense is, is, is liability, something that you're not going to get back. An investment is something that should grow, give you money back in return and some. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of great resources out there in the dental industry, be sure to do your due diligence. Now, make sure that you're also charting out that that organization chart. That's one of the most basic tips that you you know can think of in your mind, but so many people don't do that. And I know you, um, you've seen that too. And everything starts with that because then once you start listing out each person and what their responsibilities should be, you get a really clear picture of, wow, I'm probably the CEO right now, the chief everything officer. I don't need yep. to be that, right? Yep. And, and if it, so statistically, just so people know, seven to 10 direct reports is about what someone can handle from an administrative capacity. So you see that very often that if you, I'll, I'll come in and I have directors of operations that they say, well, we really feel they're under, you know, underperforming and they have 15 direct reports. I'm like, they're, it's not that they're underperforming. They're just spread too thin. You need to take this role and break it in two. And that it happens all the time. So even these mega practices that have one office manager, but they have 35 employees, they need a different structure for that to be successful. Yep, absolutely. All right. This has been amazing. Uh, I've taken more time than I was supposed to, but I, I could do this all day long. You probably could do Vincent, but oh, yeah. we're, uh, we're, we're going to wrap things up here. Uh, definitely might have to bring you on for, for a whole follow-up series uh, eventually on this though, because there's a lot more questions I have, but for those listening, um, you know, Vincent, how could people get in, in touch with you? What's kind of the, the next step they're hearing this? They want, they want to reach out. What, how could they do that? Yeah, so the easiest way uh, is through our website, Midline Dental Partners. And right at the top, there's a book of consultation, takes it straight through lands. I work primarily with most of our clients, so it, it'll go straight through to my calendar. So it, it's easy. And I'm, of course, like Shane, Dental Nachos. I'm sure if you're on there, you see me on there all the time. I have people send me messages and Facebook Messenger constantly. So I always tell people, even if you don't work with me, I'm happy to lend a piece or two of advice to just, if it makes your life a little bit easier, that that gives me everything I need. Yeah, everybody listens. Yeah, Vincent, he, he's one of the really good ones. I, I see his advice and, and you take time out of your day to help people who, you know, some of those people may never, you know, pay you a dime, but you take the time to help them. And that's something I, I really respect and, and appreciate about you. And Thank you for what you're doing, you know, in the dental industry and people definitely listening to this, reach out to Vincent, book a call. He's a wealth of knowledge. He can help you avoid so many mistakes that so many others have made through life experiences. Take the shortcut. If you can reach out to Midline Dental Partners. They are great at what they do. Vincent, thank you so much for being on here and uh, we'll, we'll bring you back on again soon. Yes, yeah, I'm good, Shane. I appreciate you having me on.